Hi, my name's Paul Irvine. I'm a musician and entertainment paralegal, and you're listening to Talking Blues. come from a large family of eight kids. Um, what's it like growing up with a huge family like that? Uh, well, it was a, a wonderful experience, no doubt. Uh, it was very uh, it, it, full of activity every day. There was, uh, <laughs> there was a lot going on every day, yes. Um, what's it like growing up in a large family? Well, we certainly don't see much of it these days in terms of uh, large families. Um, and of course, you wouldn't know what it's like to be in a small family. I would not know what it's like to be in a small family, um, but to be in a large family, what, what I, again, in hindsight, all these years later, looking back, it, uh, it, it just uh, it amazes me how different we all were as individuals. And uh, that, uh, that made, uh, made the growing up experience... Um, well, in, enjoyable in, on many uh, levels. You, you had all these people that were, uh, um, you know, siblings that were around you that were unique. So it was, uh, but it was also very competitive, yes. <laughs> um, your parents are both musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other kids, uh, your brothers, sisters, are they musical as well? Right. Well, my oldest brother, Joey, he, is, uh, he passed away uh, a couple, two and a half years ago. Uh, very musical. Uh, harmonica player, drummer, um, and, and singer at times. Um, my brother Mike, second oldest, he w- had a uh, he was not uh, a player. Although we, all the top four boys, the first four boys, we all had to play drums. Uh, because your dad was a drummer. My dad was a drummer. Yes. And you had to play drums. We had to play <laughs> drums. So uh, yeah, clearly. Um, from uh, the age, and I'll just continue on. So my next oldest brother, the third boy, Pat, uh, he was uh, he was uh, an incredible um, uh, drum corps drummer, military drummer, what what a rudiment based drummer. Uh, he won the uh, uh, I think it was seventy four no you know seventy four the tenor drum champion of Canada. I mean, his uh, rudiment technique, he was like a machine gun. Wow. Um, and he would go on for hours. I mean, he'd, he would drive us crazy. <laughs> because <laughs> he would do these rudiments. Just <laughs> like, ah, shut up. <laughs> well, because we, we were more into, you know, or rock groups, whatever, on the kit. But Why do you think it was that your dad thought it necessary to teach the first four kids drums like that it was important for them to do that well yeah and maybe with the last four would they not is it because your brother who kept on practicing that the other four didn't have to they didn't have to so after after me my sister kelly and no she was not uh involved in music uh, um she very much on, on the uh on the writing side uh you know pursued that to a certain extent my brother kevin excellent guitarist uh, but not the drums uh, but he really worked the guitar side um, uh, mightily, and, and still does. He still he's still out playing, not certainly not professionally these days. And uh, my sister Jackie, she a beautiful voice, but she didn't per- pursue it uh, um, as a as a singer or any, anything like that. 
and my brother, youngest brother Casey, uh, he also he played drums uh, somewhat. <laughs> he was like he would have been a uh, he was ahead of his time. He was would have been a great punk drummer. <laughs> Do you know but, why it was important to your dad that you the first four took drums? I don't know if it was important as much as uh, he saw it as um, um, uh, as another uh, source of income or a skill that you can, you know, use, make right. money from. I mean, he certainly uh, made uh, made extra money because he had his his day jobs, of course. Um, but um, so yeah, I, I I think that's that's how he saw it. Now at, at a certain point. Uh, he he changed his tune when he particularly when he saw some of them, some of us particularly Joey my oldest brother and myself really pursuing music seriously <clears throat> he said no 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 you, you got to get a trade you got to get a trade because <laughs> music is not it's not uh, it's not a viable means of making a living and um, you know I, I clearly rejected that because I, I did pursue it. And at the point where, <clears throat> this is more into the later 70s now, where, you know, he was ex- more fully accepting that, yeah, okay, I guess you can make a living making music. <laughs> What's well, interesting, because if he made money yes, he did. on the side mm-hmm. playing music, but realized that that wasn't a full-time gig, mm-hmm. the fact that he worked on, he, he had a full-time job and music was this part-time thing. Right. I can understand why he would think that way. Well, you know, I think there's a, a level of, uh, you know, uh, looking out for your kids, protecting them going forward, knowing that it's a big, bad world and they've got to be prepared and have a means to, you know, mm-hmm. make ends meet. So maybe there's a bit of that in, in his thinking. But, um, yeah, it was much, as I say, much later in the, in the curve where he uh, was very proud of uh, some of the achievements. Right. So how did that happen? So you began playing the drums. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and soon I got into other instruments at school, flute being the first one. Right. That um, was, yes. Because oftentimes when, when people are told to play, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would become passionate about music. When did you become passionate about music? Well, this is where the competitive side played into <laughs> it well. Because when so we were uh, I, I still remember very clearly every Saturday morning we would line up on the workbench with our drumsticks and uh, we would learn our rudiments and uh, you know with the metronome clicking back and forth and you know of course you'd rather be doing other things on Saturday morning but um, we all started to get pretty good right and that's that's kind of when it started where um, you start to get uh, half decent at something and you know we have now we're beyond the the wooden plank on the workbench in the basement, and uh, okay, now you can play the drum kit. But take 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 turns, my dad, right? And uh, you know we're all of course trying to outdo each other. We'd put because uh, we had two two uh, speakers between the drum kit, and we'd put on our records and whatever it was. You could just play play along with whatever it was. Give me some examples. What would you have, what would have been your choice? Well, of? right. Okay. It was a narrow choice because my dad was like a total jazz guy, <laughs> Dixon that guy. So that, okay. those were the choices early on. And it, it took some time before, uh, you know, 
the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, etc., started to find their way onto the turntable. <laughs> I'm curious, as, as the drummer of that age, and I, I don't know if you wanted to pursue drumming any further, but as the drummer of that age, what was the drummer that you related to, or who did you want to emulate? Right. Well, it would be, I mean... You know, Buddy Rich, of course, was the king of right. kings, along with Max Roach and Louis Belson, um, uh, Gene Krupa. Oh, my dad, that was his hero, Gene Krupa. <clears throat> and, of course, we all had to play Sing, Sing, Sing. <laughs> that was, like, mandatory, along with Wipeout. But Wipeout wasn't allowed in the beginning. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, but um, you know, I don't think there was any one favorite i mean i'm i'm so um enamored of you know drummers that move me like well like ringo I and mean, people yeah, forget never mind all the jazz the j the great jazz drummers mm -hmm. I mean, and there are just so many that right. um that blow me away every time i hear hear a track the, whether it's alvin jones or you know <clears throat> i mean the list goes on um but uh you know, uh, Ringo or John Bonham or any of any of the who just you know okay that sounds I can do that, but then you you, you know you go to find that thing they're in that uh, pocket that pocket yes thank you, uh, and it's uh, it it's magical mm -hmm. it's magical when you you know and I've worked with lots of great drummers over the years and yeah I mean technically if you, if you line them all up technically okay you all have the same technical ability. But uh, some have uh, different ways of looking at time, and um, and that can be uh, uh, that can connect with you on a on on a, on a level that it's hard to describe. You just know it. And they, yeah, the pocket. It's like yeah, yeah. I like where you're taking me, rhythmically. And, um, um, but you didn't continue with the drums. Well, I guess you kind of did. But oh, I mean, you, yeah, you sought so, after other music musical instruments. Right. So, you know, at at. Uh, so in grade seven, I guess well, how, old, how old would I be in grade seven? I was a uh, fine piano player in our public school at the time. Uh, he and I were the, the pit band for the musical, which was um, uh, Guys and Dolls. And then in grade eight, we were the pit band for the, um, uh, we did uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. So and what are you playing at this point? Uh, drums. Oh, still with drums. So we're okay. just a duo, drums and piano. And uh, I mean... Uh, my memory of it is we were good like we were really good and you don't hear that combination that much no but uh but we here here was this public school with these you know these kids and some of the, the singers in in the, the school were, were equally good so it was uh it, again my memory it was that uh, it, it was pretty darn good um so that was in seven and eight now i get into grade nine and uh so at this point yes tell me at that point, what, how, how would you describe your passion for music? Right. So very passionate because it, uh, it gave me a, a sense of, um, you know, uh, I was not a great sports guy. Uh, I was, although a lot of my friends were excellent uh, sports, yeah, hockey, soccer, right. um, baseball. But um, so that, that gave me a sense of, um, hey, you know, I got an my, identity. I got my an identity. Thing. Yeah. That's that's this is my thing, and uh, 
And uh, yeah, you know, some of them wanted in on that. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go from the drums to flute? Yeah, so, in, uh, so now moving into grade nine at Woburn Collegiate Institute in Scarborough. Um, so my brother, as I say, he, he was in grade 12 at the time. I, I just moved into nine. Uh, and um, uh, he had this band, the Joe Irvine Blues Band. And it was an incredible band. I mean, they did, uh, uh, the, the focus was primarily on, um, it was like a remake, if you will, of uh, Paul Butterfield's um, The Resurrection of Pig Boy Crabshaw. I mean, that's kind of what they modeled, modeled it off of, by like a 10-piece band, five horns, just massive, it was great. Wow. Yeah, so we get to grade, I get to grade nine, and um, so the first big assembly of the year, and there's 2,200 students in, in this school at the time. It was like just uh, a lot of people in the auditorium. Anyway, Joey had asked me, uh, they were doing three songs, would I play one of the songs with them? And I thought, well, yeah, sure, why not? As the drummer. As the drummer. Okay. So their, their regular drummer, uh, and Nigel Dean, he, he sat out and I got up. And um, Sorry, that's a big deal, isn't it? It was a huge deal. And I, I remember that moment, that was probably one of the def real defining moments because I remember uh, being on the stage with, you know, the, the full school in this assembly and this this horn section, this line of brass, right? And all these guitar players and keyboards and my brother Joe out front. So there's that comfort thing. There. Yeah, my older brother's up front, so good, we can do this. And, uh, and then counting it in, um, whoever, I can't remember who counted, he probably counted it in, but um, uh, the song was Drifting and Drifting. And um, yeah, I remember it just, uh, again, my memory, and his memory too, well, he's passed away, uh, but uh, was that we were, it was great, it was great. And uh, so I went from being, uh, this is in grade nine, uh, being just this, you know, because you're kind of in grade nine, it's, it's all a new experience, mm -hmm. and you're kind of terrified with it. Uh, I went from being that um, to this, <laughs> this, uh, this, this status as, oh. You're, so I'm curious as to, there's two brothers in between you and Joey. Yes, that's right. Who also played the drums. We all had to play the drums, yes, but but they didn't. Joey didn't ask them. Oh no! Well, they were not. Uh, Pat was at the school, but um, but he was not a uh, he was a rudiment, a military okay, drummer. Okay. Oh yeah, he could not. You know, he passed away also. Could not uh, keep a groove if his life depended on. <laughs> but man, you ask him to do, you know, the downfall of Paris, three camps, any of the, uh, the you know the classic military right. book pieces, and he, he would. I mean, it was just amazing what he could do. On but the it's, it side. must be, you know, I think about my relationship to my brothers and, you know, somebody who is four years older than you, who's the oldest brother, mm -hmm. I presume there was a bit of, you would look up to him. The fact that he would ask you, you know, a grade nine kid to join him, is, that's a big deal. He, so he must have thought it very highly of you. It was a challenge too, though, Marco. <laughs> he was putting me on the spot. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, okay. Well, he, yeah, he knew I could do it. I knew I could do it. The band knew I could do it. I mean, I, I had done the rehearsals with them. Right. Like, we didn't, I didn't just walk on stage. Like, you know, we did some rehearsals. And, and they were all, well, again, much older than me, but so supportive 
Like it was great, really, uh, really wonderful experience. So, um, but you know, that moment being on stage and looking out and just seeing the sea of faces was, yeah, that was probably one of those defining moments where, yeah, I like this. <laughs> I like this feeling. Well, they say that of performers that yeah, yeah. you know, it's like a, it, it's a, it's a rush to be on stage, especially when when you're delivering. Yeah, when you, you know, go, when it goes well. When it's going well, it's it's really when it's not going well. It's <laughs> on the first one, it would be whoa. horrible. <laughs> it's frightening. <laughs> okay, so how did you get from drums to other musical instruments? Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, again, my, my brother Joe uh, was always all these musicians always come around coming around the house uh, with his different uh, iterations of various groups he was either in or trying to organize. Um, you know the, the the 70s at this time coming out of the 60s I mean everyone wanted to be in a band everyone mm -hmm. thought they could play and uh, this, there was just so many musicians around who thought they could play some of them were pretty good but you know it was yeah, a, lot, a lot of uh, one chord wonders and that's okay too right? <laughs> but um, this one uh, musician uh, Nat Abraham uh, Nat played with Down, Downchild for a time uh, uh, um, in the, I think it was in the mid 70s and that was over. Uh, he, he and Joey uh, were, were friends, and he had um, he had a flute. This would have been uh, toward the end of grade nine. He had a flute with him. He was a woodwind sax player, and um, we were out on the driveway and uh, just talking away. And yeah, Joey and Nat and myself and Nat uh, um, he had his flute and he was playing it like riffing, and I was just like. So intrigued with this instrument, I said, "Wow, Nat, can you mind if can I try that?" <clears throat> he showed me the basic, how to hold it, and uh, I mean, it's uh, it, it was instant. My connection with the flute, like I was just, this is my instrument, and you could actually play something. Oh yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, almost almost instantly, yeah. Um, how do you account for that? What is that? And well, you know, this is what I wish they would allow to have happen in the school system is for for students to uh, choose which instrument they wish to pursue because, you know, I mean, someone always gets stuck with the tuba or the French horn or, you know, right. those instruments. Not the that there's anything wrong with those. Not, the, not, not that <laughs> nothing wrong with those, uh, you know, but... Um, no, it was a natural affinity to this uh, this instrument, and and, and that was it. So, um, between the grade nine and grade ten, uh, I was able to develop, uh, get a flute, and because uh, I was in a science, technology, and trade program in grade nine, you know, auto shop, um, machine shop, drafting, electrical, and uh, and I really enjoyed that actually, um, uh, but. Uh, but grade 10, I, I, I realized, well, I, I want to be in the music program. So I had worked up enough flute playing all by ear. Um, I went into the teacher, and I went to the guidance office and said, hey, I, I want to get in the music program. And I said, well, you needed to be in grade 9 to be up to speed on the, if that's the reason. And, you know, so she said, well, go talk to the music teacher. So I talked to Mr. Fowler. He was the, 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 the head, uh, uh, William Fowler. Wonderful, wonderful man. And he said, well, <clears throat> play something for me. So I, I played. And he's like, oh, okay. Do you know how to read? And I said, I said no, not notes. I can read rhythms but, um, from the drums, but, uh, but not notes. But I'll learn quickly. And he said, okay, tell the guidance office you're in. And um, 
so that was grade 10 in the in the band program and I would I was in this line of the flute players so I would just listen to what they played and played along as I was learning to read and I learned to read very quickly and became you know proficient uh, at, at reading I really still to this day enjoy reading music it's a, just a fantastic so skill. this was something the art of reading music was something you learned in high school in grade 10 well, I learned the basics of reading rhythm from the, excuse the me, from, from the drums, but uh, reading notes on the, uh, you know, the, the treble staff and the, and the bass, uh, ba- treble clef and the, the bass clef was something that, yeah, I, do, I would have developed in, in going into, uh, into grade 10. Okay, so how long does it take for you to now just read things, just read it and play it without any hesitation? But, well, it's it's just it's a it's a zero question. <laughs> Sight reading is just part of reading. Okay, but how long did it get to to that stage? Yeah, for you. Oh well, I mean, I you know in those early days when when I realized that uh, uh, there were some really good flute players in, in my high school, um, and I wanted to be the best, and uh, so I was I was uh, really gunning for it, um, and. Uh, I would say it took me a good f- three years of really working. This is by this time post high school. I mean, right. but uh, you know, yeah, sight reading. You're always, you know, I, I'd be a little rusty at this point, but uh, you know, I mean, the, it becomes the this this um, experience where you see patterns on the page, and they just they they they, they just come out like you just know you've seen that pattern a hundred times. Okay, so yeah. this always comes up in my conversations, especially with classical musicians. But mm-hmm. which, which is very much where I went. Okay, so that's yes. where you wanted to go. I was very, my mind was very much in the classical direction. I thought I'm, I'm going to master the because I, uh, you know, I was surrounded by blues and jazz and everything. But I, I really uh, loved classical flute players, Jean Pierre Rampal and James Galway. I mean, they're just um, uh, a lot of different players that I admired and, and wanted to get that purity of tone and technique, uh, and bring that to to you know to the to the pop jazz sensibility, much like Hubert Laws did, um, uh, you know. But uh, at the same side, I was also you know um, taken by the, uh, the the raw emotion of uh, like a Roland Kirk, Russian Roland Kirk, what 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 he would bring to the instrument. So. You know, it was. Uh, but I focused very much on the on the classical side. So you had, you had a question about the classical mm-hmm. playing. Well, I just wondered, at, you know, so you you take you head down the path of learning to sight read, and work very hard on learning your flute and to sight read. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, there's two questions. One is, you know, so somebody who grew up being a drummer, and and knowing how to do rhythm. That's a very different discipline than being um, a flautist, right? Like, I mean, yes. it's, like yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yes, rhythm it versus melody or whatever. Yes, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. How was that adjustment is one question. And then the other question is, you know, you, you had some background with your drums and the blues and improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, where were you in terms of being able to improvise when you were doing the sight reading? 
Oh, okay, well, just on that point, I mean, when you're sight reading, I mean, you are, um, you're lifting um, the notes on the page into, uh, uh, you know, uh, an oral, a live oral experience. So right. it's, it, there's no improvisation per se. There's interpretation, but, but not, not improvising. Right, knowing se. that, though, yes. were you able to improvise at all other than just to sight read with the flute? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I was I was comfortable with uh, with uh, improvisation early on. Uh, however, as I, as as I progressed as as a musician, um, you know, and when you when you look uh, deeper into just the, uh, the the enormity of of the the talent out there and how, particularly on a harmonic uh, level, where you know something like John Coltrane, where the you know the chord is changing every beat, right. and he's just flying through these uh, uh, these patterns of notes. Uh, I remember, uh, and I think every horn player comes to that point where you experience someone like Coltrane or Parker, and you realize they're improvising. You know, yes, they've thought about this progression at some point, and yes, they they have maybe some rote patterns, but they're also making this up as they go. Right. And, um, you know, I realized that, okay, my brain doesn't quite work like that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm, I'm too classically trained because, you know, in the classical realm, and I know that's a, a, a general term, but, it, you know, yes, there's an amazing uh, repertoire of uh, uh, learning and techniques uh, in that realm and um, that, uh, that, that can... Uh, it can can um, uh, in some ways inhibit you, you know, because you're you're locked into playing it a certain way. Yeah, but I always think it's the different two very different disciplines, right? Yes, and yes. and it, it always amazes me when I see these amazing classical musicians who can just look at a piece of paper and execute mm-hmm. with feeling and depth I mean, it, and whatever. Yes, yes, it is amazing. But ask them to improvise and. You know, it's just a different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and again, I, I, I would never uh, look down on uh, someone um, who you know, mm-hmm. can't improvise. Um, but it, it is something that is, uh, I guess, in some ways, I feel sorry for them. <laughs> well, because yeah, yeah. you know, just to make it up, key of uh, yeah, E minor, uh, one, two, and just set up a groove and let's have some fun, right? Right. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> it, is it written out? Where, yeah, where, where yeah. do I? Where do? Where's my starting note? No, just, just go. Yeah, you know, it, it's a it's a wonderful uh, um, uh, a talent. Yeah, to 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 have that freedom to make uh, to make 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 music freely. I mean, but but that said, also uh, having uh, worked with a number of um, you know uh, teachers over the years uh, in. Uh, often in the classical realm where it's very strict. I mean, the expectation is here, here's the standard and this is what I'm measuring, I'm gauging you against. Um, so let's go. So they don't want any variance. It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, purity of tone, rhythm, execution, articulations. It's, you know, it's, it's just uh, in the back of your mind, you're like, ah, to hell with all that. <laughs> I just want to so, rock. <laughs> So your your goal was always to pursue that classical knowledge, but to maybe apply it to other things. Well, like I, I was, I was, and I was pursuing, uh, and and 
you know, had had uh, met so many wonderful uh, musicians in in the classical realm. Um, at the same time, I was you know now by then gigging with a lot of people on on the um, uh, in in the pop and rock side uh, on the saxophone also, of course. But um, okay, so how did you become a saxophonist? <laughs> yes, so you know, I I don't know what. Um, what really uh, triggered that. So there was two teachers, two music teachers in high school. There was uh, Mr. Fowler, who was, uh, uh, well, they were both real inspirations, but Mr. Fowler was very much, um, I mean, his hero was Bach. I, I can say that knowingly, because he, you know, we would talk about Bach a lot, so I'm, oh, I'm assuming. Uh, in some ways, but uh, yes, so we both love Bach. I mean, Bach, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach is, is still my hero to this day as a um, as a composer. Um, but uh, so he and he was the one who uh, you know said yes, come in, grade ten, fine. He looks like you're far enough along, fine. Let's, let's go, get up to speed. Um, and I was in in his that class. Uh, I was uh, playing. Um, flute in the concert band. Uh, I, I, I was uh, uh, quickly got into those additional bands because they, they had so many awesome. There was a stage band, and, uh, the, the senior orchestra, the concert band. There's a lot of different uh, and, and pit, pit bands. It's all, all sorts of opportunities you could uh, uh, pursue. It was very much like an arts high school. Um, and and, uh, and then there was Mr. Cole, John Cole, and he he was the opposite of. Um, Mr. Fowler. He was like a, a rough and ready kind of uh, jazz trombonist kind of guy and everything was you know, the book goes out the window and let's go. It's, uh, but he was also uh, um, he also had that uh, marching band thing. And it was it was through uh, Mr. Cole that uh, ended up um, in the um, 48th Highlanders concert band marching around Toronto in a kilt. <laughs> <laughs> which is another story at one point uh, after high school um, it was hey it was a paid gig there you go <laughs> but um, so you, you know I'd be in this uh, uh, section of flute players um, in uh, in mr. Fowler's class and um, you know mr. Cole would sometimes come in and for whatever reason they would you know take turns uh, doing the class and uh, Mr. Cole, so by, uh, I guess towards the end of grade 10, he decided, I don't know what he was thinking. It's like, you know, it was all uh, girls playing flute and I'm the one guy. So I, he said, no, no, you, you need to be playing saxophone, Paul. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm a flute player. He said, yeah, but number one, if you pursue music, saxophone, you, you want to be able to double and you'll probably make more money playing saxophone which he was right <laughs> on that point. Um, and uh, so I, at that point, moved to tenor sax. Um, I, you know, I tried the alto, but I felt, uh, and I do play the alto, but I felt more comfortable in the tenor. So that was always the instrument that I, I focused on. But I continued with the flute with the senior band. So Mr. Fowler said, well, you, you can do. So I was now uh, doing two music classes uh, the year ahead because by then I had advanced into the next level so I was dealing with a lot of senior musicians and they were fabulous 
um, to, to have that. Uh, my, my mantra has always been, uh, well, w at that stage in particular, to play with musicians who are better than you because <laughs> it forces you uh, to up your game, to, you know, tr try and, uh, you know, play to the, the top of your ability and then go beyond. Because when you're learning an instrument, you go through these, uh, these stages where, you know, you get, you're getting good, you're getting good, you're getting good, and then you're on this plateau. And then sometimes that plateau can last for, well, quite a while. Mm -hmm. And in spite of, you know, your best efforts to practice, practice, you know, putting more time in, you seem to sit there. And then suddenly, you know, provided you keep on. And uh, now I had a number of great teachers, and that, that really helped me um, on, on fluid and sax. Uh, you would break through and you go on to this next, ah, okay, that's in the past. Right. And, um, and that was, uh, that, that was really, uh, really helpful. But uh, that, that was, that was when I transitioned, it was, would have been towards the end of grade 10 into, uh, into 11, where I was now playing sax and flute. Okay. So yeah, I know both instruments. I don't know how to play them, but how different is the thinking and the playing of the two instruments? Is it pretty well... Do they serve the same purpose and play the same notes, or is it completely different? Right. Well, it's a great question, and here's, it, 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 I guess, the simple answer um, would be that there is a similarity uh, based on um, the commonality of the fingering uh, that's applied to most wind instruments. If you put all uh, six fingers down. Uh, at six of uh, your main uh, fingers, if you will, and, and your left thumb uh, on the um, on the, the, the thumb hole or key um, or uh, or um, a plate. It's going to be a D. So that's the starting point. Now these instruments, like an E flat instrument, even though you have those fingers down and on the page, it's called a D. It will it will actually sound another note. So it was a means of allowing um, uh, primarily wind instruments of different um, um, pitch ranges to all uh, to have a, a common fingering uh, notation um, so it, that's the similarity and that's about where it stops <laughs> right because i can imagine just just the way the mouth contacts the oh, exactly it's completely different yes. and the way it's played is completely right different. and beyond those six fingers and thumb like Everything else is different, like all the uh, the side keys, the, uh, the you know the roller right. finger, the uh, baby finger keys. They're all different. Um, I mean, you go to the oboe and the and the, the same thing. You put the six fingers down, you get a D. But everything else is <laughs> just all every which way. So how does your mind work with that? Like, how does the flutist become the saxophonist? Right, uh, <laughs> one step at a time. Uh, it, it, well, with the saxophone, uh, it, it it's a uh, you know, you start on a um, on a student mouth. Student mouthpiece would be something that is, uh, you know, uh, in, in a, a, a softer reed, so easy to produce a sound. So you're getting that basic tone um, to, to to at least get you started to, to to supporting a note with your you develop develop the you know the support of the embouchure the muscles, the, the facial mask. Uh, that takes time, certainly, uh, but once you know, once you get to a certain point, um, it, you know, it's 
game on. Um, okay. The, the, so. the, the, the trick would be to go. So you, when you're, you know, say you're blowing a hard sax solo, and you know the muscles are really, you know, going for it, and, uh, and now you, you got to pick up the flute, right? <laughs> Which is a completely right. different muscle set, and, and requires uh, like very much a relaxed, very relaxed uh, facial uh, mask, muscle musculature mask. Um, that can be very tricky to do convincingly. Okay, mm-hmm. So the other thing is tone, yes. which a lot of musicians talk about, and whatever instrument. So when do you get your own tone for the flute and the sax? Or when is it that you, you know what your sound is? Yes, that's a great question. And I experienced that, um, you know, as whatever limited as it may be uh, where I felt like hey that's my sound you know uh, on the flute flute earlier because I was really really focused on the, on the flute development um, you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't a pure classical tone or uh, it wasn't a uh, like a, um, a um, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of um, that one jazz flautist um, Herbie Mann it wasn't like a uh, a rocky, funky tone. Would, I mean, he was another big. I was a big fan of uh, Herbie Mann, also. But uh, it was somewhere in, in between, and uh, that um, you know, it's not like, hey, this, this is it. Here I am. I've arrived. It's it's now. You know, when when do I use this? When I know me, when do I apply me in, in a certain settings? Because you know, as a as a soloist, you, you're not always. You know, you, you don't want to. Particularly if you're working with a band or a vocalist, you don't want to like blow everyone away every time. You got to be kind of within the context of the song. Right. Um, yeah, and then with the saxophone, with the saxophone, this is you know again moving out into the world post high school, um, and you know went through numerous bands, numerous experiences, um, meeting other musicians, auditioning for bands, um, getting the gig, not getting the gig. Um, and always developing, you know, your sound, whatever that may be, and um, and and that was uh, with the saxophone. I was never, um, you know, fully committed on which, which sound is really my sound because I, I was I often felt like, oh, I'm I'm going to borrow this little bit of Clarence Clements here, and maybe a little bit of King Curtis over there, and uh, a little bit of Gatto Barbieri on this one, you know, so you could. <laughs> You can mix it up and right, right. and always know that you know stylistically which which of those you know people you idolize musically as you know instrumentalist sax players you were borrowing from. So with the saxophone, uh, my my I would say my my um, my my style was was always my sound was always kind of um, yeah, elusive, but 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 there when I needed it for whichever. You know, song. So, at what point do you decide I want to pursue music as a career? So, after high school, and at, at this time, I mean, post secondary education was certainly not what it is now, where it's like everyone, you, you got to get something post secondary, you got to right. college or trades or, you know, university, uh, which is wonderful. I mean, yeah, education, absolutely. But at that time in our house, it was uh, um, 
okay, you finish high school, get out, get a job, you got to contribute. <laughs> that was the deal. So, fine, that's what you did. And uh, I worked in a, after high school, I worked in a, in a factory for a number of months, which was great, you know, made some money, always practicing, come home uh, and, and taking lessons and, and going out for auditions and jamming with uh, a lot of my friends. I had a, an incredible uh, uh, network of friends, including my, my brother's uh, network, where, with which I, w I would just we'd, we'd be jamming all the time, constantly. There was always something going on. So at this point, it's flute, sax. Are you still playing the drums? No, not much. Okay, so it's no. just those two? Or? But, but, but wouldn't hesitate to jump on a kid if the need arose. <laughs> but it was there, because you play way more instruments now, were there other instruments coming into the fold? Hmm, well, keyboards. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and once again, a completely different thing. Yes, but the keyboards were, were uh, there was no keyboard in our house uh, when I was growing up. Um, but... Uh, that was the one one instrument that I um, always yeah I want to I want to get a, get a handle on this, and I did have a uh, a um, an uh, electric, very basic um, keyboard back in the um, in the mid seventies that I would try and get uh, get a handle on it, but uh, I never really developed much on that side but it gave me a, a, a deeper sense of harmony and structure and and, and that was uh, that was really helpful and uh, at um, around that time I guess it was more 70 76 70, 77 78 I was living down around the annex area and um, uh, um, there was a church nearby uh, I forget the name of it it's right there on Bloor Street and uh, they had a sign up, you know, piano available. So I would book time and just go in, in there and practice on the piano in in in, uh, in that church in the basement. And that was that was fabulous uh, opportunity. Not that I ever excelled on the piano, but it just gave me this, you know, a sense of the keyboard. The well, the the, the, the expanse of the keyboard. I mean, the keyboard to me is still, and in some ways I like it that way because. You know, I mean, with the, the, the flute, the, the saxophone, I'm, I'm, I've gone deep, I've explored it in a deep way, I get it. Um, right. Not that I'm doing that every day now, um, but but I did, uh, I, I took a few lessons here and there just to get a sense of, um, you know, how, how to uh, command this instrument. Um, there was a, a jazz uh, uh, band leader, uh, uh, piano teacher, uh, Ted Moses, who had the Mother Necessity Big Band, among other things, and his, his wife, Catherine Moses. But I took some lessons with Ted, and he showed me some actually cool, basic things. Here's uh, where what you can explore to, you know, dig deeper into the keyboard beyond just, you know, what you'd find at the, the RCM, the Royal Conservatory Music Program, where you're da 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 you know, the basic scale patterns, which are still valuable. But uh, that, was, that was valuable, uh, those handful of lessons from, from Ted. Um, I'm curious, years mm. later, you, you pursue writing music. Well, I was always writing music. Oh, you were? Okay, so oh, yes. how were you writing music? Was it written melodically with the sax, or like what would the chord structures, how was right. that written? Yeah, well, it would be, okay, sometimes chords first, sometimes melody first, often metal, melody first, you know, um, yeah. The but if there's chords first? So if it, yeah, so if... if a chord progression that I often look at as a as a 
a sketch, a, a painting with, with some a, a basic outline that, to which you can add, you know, like the, the, the melody can uh, move through that chord progression. So having a chord progression as a, a starting point um, can, can be in, in, invaluable, much like, you know, Charlie Parker did with uh, um, numerous of his uh, uh, songs where he took the chord progression of, for example, How High the Moon, uh, and well, the list goes on. I forget what he called that one. Was it ornithology or um, anyway, taking the chord progression and creating your own melody on top of that? It's it's uh, eh, it's you see that. Uh, but how how would you have written the chord progression using keyboards or uh, yeah, keyboards or guitar? I mean, I I did yes, <laughs> of course. I did have a guitar around. I guess from the, about the age of fifteen. Went and bought a really cheap guitar, and learned, which I still use to this day. You know the basic chords. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're all there. You slap a capo on, and you're good for <laughs> whatever you need. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, it was, uh, it was so you could com composing music was not. Uh, again, I, I didn't. Uh, I was amazed of of, of these. Uh, you know, the great composers, how they could come up with these. Uh, well, never mind Bach, of course, but the, the others, how they can come up with these uh, motifs and then develop them into these symphonies, etc. So I would, uh, and I still have these, a lot of uh, uh, manuscripts of, of riffs and ideas, and a lot of them would turn into pieces. Um, some more fully fleshed out, others not so much. Um, with lyric based songs it uh, it would often be the lyric that preceded the melody I would have come up with the lyric and and then find a melody to go with that lyric yeah. you know or sometimes they come in at the same time like the, the creative process you know but sometimes it's all at once you hit a chord and the song just starts it's no I mean yeah. it's it's an amazing thing you know well the creative process which I'm uh, I'm sure you're familiar with when when you make you know you're working on something and it it all just falls in place and yeah. you look at it and go nah i don't need to think about that that is good <laughs> right <laughs> well it is it just goes through you yes it goes yeah. through you and there it is and uh, and yes if you if that's part of the um i guess the trick is to not when 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 your your, your heart of heart says that's good like that first take was good leave it to not um to not uh, uh, you know revisit it. So after school, you audition for a lot of bands. Mm -hmm. You also get into the studio and do some studio work. Well, that that continued throughout. I mean, but but by the time you're doing a session work, I mean, you you're, you've 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 got to be you know at, at a, a point where you can uh, perform, right? Because you know when the when the when the when the, when the record button is on. Um, you know, it, it's got to be in time, on time, in tune. <laughs> how much? How much of what you were working on depended on your sight reading ability? Yeah, there was a um, well. Certain of the, uh, uh, yeah, the of, of those that type of session certainly depended on on that. Like if you were called to do uh, a section, uh, or you know. Um, uh, a small combo. I never did any. Uh, I didn't do any uh, orchestra work. Um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, the sight reading was, was important uh, because the expectation was that everyone could... Ready? Everyone take a look? Good, here we go. That's a, We're not recording yet, but let's run it down a couple of times. And, um, you know, that, that's that's the expectation that you're there because you can you can do this you, you know you, you know the game plan and you're gonna uh, deliver so um yeah i mean sight reading sight reading is an expectation you're not going to no that said if you, you, you for the wrecking crew if you've followed any of that story i mean you know there's glenn campbell turning to carol Kay saying what does it say <laughs> what's it say on the page you know in spite of the fact that he was an amazing musician, mm-hmm. his right, his reading wasn't at a level as the other musicians. So she would show him. It goes like this, Glenn. You know, I think he developed his reading as they went as they became more of you know, the wrecking crew that we we know right. and love from that period. How did you get into the studio work? How did that all start? Yeah, well, there was uh, you know again just uh, a lot of musicians in uh, in the Scarborough in the Toronto area that um, uh, were working on either demos or had um you know the early stages of what would be a home studio you know and some of them actually uh, developed into full-on professional uh studios uh some of them some of my friends pursued that um so those opportunities you know were uh there were there were many actually you know i mean nothing uh Nothing. Yeah. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There was, there was a few that uh, you know were uh, notable, you know, but um, but a lot of it was just uh, you know being in that in that situation and doing your job. Right. You know, like a, I was out in Newfoundland uh, back in the this was '79, and uh, a friend, uh, well, who had met out there, uh, said, "My friend is recording this the CBC score, and they need need a flute player." And I told him about you, so he <laughs> ended up in St. John's and got on this session. And that was the first question, can you read? Yes. Good. Okay, so here's the time. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was often the case. Uh, you know, how's your reading? Yeah. Okay, so the other thing was that you played with numerous bands. One of them was the Ronnie Hawkins band. That was the, I would put that as the last. Okay. Yes, that's when I kind of hung up my guns <laughs> because of that band? oh god no no no. <laughs> no it was um that would have been in uh the uh i guess 90 or 91 um probably 90 where um yeah um, that uh i was with ronnie for a couple of years 80 89 90 and um you know yeah, married in 91 and the first child in 92 right and um it was in '93, the um, that recession hit. There was a, a nasty recession that, that we all went through back then, and a lot of opportunities dried up. I mean, a lot of gigging gone. A lot of the uh, uh, production and engineering work I was doing evaporated, and uh, it was a very, very challenging time, you know. But um, it was uh, at that time I was, um, you know, I was moving away from playing as a player very much moving away from uh, playing. So before that, um, uh, I mean, there was just a lot of bands, a lot of different bands in between, like if you want to call them milestones, like 
there would be okay uh, uh, milestones, if you will. Gatto. So Gatto was a heavy rock trio, mm-hmm. uh, and I did um, their uh, their full-on uh, debut. They had a, a previous release, but it, it was a. Uh, I guess it was their second album. It was called Who Cares? And right. I, I did uh, three tracks on that. Um, and uh, so that was 77. And then, uh, you know, a, a ton of bands in between, a lot of a lot of blues bands in Toronto from probably 70, 78 through to 81, 82. Uh, a lot of different blues and rock bands. And, and um, by 84, I, I did, uh, I was invited to... Um, Corey Hart's band, so I did the, the Corey Hart, uh, the the North American tours for the Sunglasses at Night, um, which was very exciting. We opened for um, April Wine, uh, Rick Springfield, and Hall and Oates, and uh, that was uh, a, just a fabulous experience to see uh, a um, a pop artist uh, go into the stratosphere in a very short period of time. I mean, we went from driving around you know across Canada in a van to you know the chauffeurs and private planes <laughs> what, what did that teach you that experience right well this is where this is where everything before that was helpful because you know I had done the <clears throat> with with various bands the northern Ontario circuit right you know and I you know <laughs> if anyone wants to experience what it's like to be a, a working musician go on you know, not just northern ontario but just any touring event although these days it would be uh, not to get off topic but it would be a challenge just to the costs mm-hmm. of, of doing tours but you know the, the, so the but the experience of being in a band uh and being on the road um, I was always already uh, well versed in in that experience you know cuz you know there's a is an expectation of cooperation <laughs> that you know you're going to be in in a van with uh, or playing with with all these people um, and you're going to be meeting a lot of media folks and you know promoters and other uh, others uh, along the way and uh, you know just uh, just keeping a level head you know so but by then I knew reasonably how to keep a Keep it in focus, right. because you know that uh, as a um, as a side guy, because I was always a side guy. I mean, and that's a side musician, and that's perfectly fine. Working musician, that's you know what it, what it was all through those years as a player. Um, that you're there for a time, and then you're on to the next uh, the next um, uh, gig, you know, whatever that may be. So you know you, you learn to appreciate that reality and um you know and and, and work it uh, as best you can while while you're in that role i mean you would know as being a musician that the kind of success that Corey hart had on that tour and beyond is might it might be something people think about or dream about but not very likely right like that's not reality for most musicians it is not so no, having not. had that yeah experience what was that like for me yeah it was uh, I mean to get the insider's view of this rise well it was um, it was very exciting uh, to see it uh, unfold 
Uh, I mean, it went to... Now, I joined the tour. Um, I was the fourth sax player they had gone through. And some you know fine players before me, but for whatever reason, it just it didn't work out. So I joined on the tour, and uh, my audition was actually at the Montreal Forum on stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Keith Brown, his one of his management management team called me um, the day before, and um, he said, uh, "Yeah, Paul, uh, this is Keith Brown, and I'm uh, one of Corey Hart's managers, and uh, uh, a couple guys in his band say that uh, you know you'd be perfect uh, as a sax player. Um, yeah, would you mind?" Uh, coming out and we'll see if it works out and I said coming out what do you mean well, coming out and he said well I'll, I'll get you up there's a plane there'll be a plane ticket waiting for you uh, we'll pick you up at the airport in Montreal and the gigs tomorrow night uh, go get the record and learn these songs and and you'll be on stage for those songs um, and maybe you could play some percussion for the other songs because we're just, we're just opening for April 1 um, so it was a you know half hour set fairly short set and um, so I said, I, I mean, part of me was like, eh, I don't know about this. Because at, at the time, I would, you know, I, I, I kind of knew about Corey Hart. And I, was, I thought, I'm not sure if I really want to do this. Um, because at that time, I was, uh, I was 27. And I was looking seriously to um, uh, applying to, uh, to music schools. Because I had not actually done a formal. But I thought, yeah, yeah, I want to get some deeper education here mm. uh, and uh, I was working on um, a number of pieces uh, to that end um, classically based pieces to submit as part of my application so uh, when the call came in um, I thought wait a minute is this, one, is this another distraction like and uh, but I accepted <laughs> thankfully because <laughs> it was a great experience anyway I uh, Went out, got the album, learned the songs, uh, went out to uh, to Montreal and uh, did the gig. Okay, so when you learn the songs, is it like you listen and go, oh, this is easy? Or do you, are you going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Oh no, it's always easy. Okay. Yeah, you always approach it like it's easy. <laughs> well, because, you know, you're trained to do this. Right. So yeah, you don't, uh, you don't, um, yeah. well, I try and approach things in life generally in, with that. Spirit. And obviously they called you because they know you're capable of doing this. Well, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I can only assume that the, the musicians who might have recommended me, who were in the band, were, were, might have been, and I don't know for sure, it would have been Russ Boswell. He was playing bass, and Gary Bright was uh, playing um, keyboards. And, and I, I knew both of them very um, well. I'd done a certain uh, number of gigs with Russ. Um, the two guitarists were from England, and uh, <laughs> they were great guys. Um, and uh, and Bruce Moffat uh, on drums, who I knew, but I hadn't actually done any gigs with Bruce. And yeah, and it was it was a fine band. It was a, actually amazing. Um, I mean, band. That. Uh, and when you played that gig, did you know that you had passed the audition? Passed the audition. So, I didn't meet Corey till we went on stage, <laughs> because when we did the sound check, and I and I got a ch at least the chance to kind of get a sense of my tune. So we ran through. Okay, good, <laughs> fine. Uh, I know where I'm going. But uh, Keith was actually singing this. The, the manager, who's a, he's a fine vocalist, he's amazing. Um, he was actually singing the songs. 
And, um, um, but then, yeah, we went on and, and it went really well. And backstage, Corey said, well, you passed the audition. Do you want to uh, be part of the, we're, you know, we've got this tour, it's going on. It's good, probably going to go for the better part of the year. And it did. It went on and on and on and on, and uh, which was uh, which was amazing. And uh, I said yes, absolutely. So um, you know, it, it was a um, it was uh, so we were in Montreal, and then we from there we jumped to uh, into a rehearsal. So we did a sh very very brief rehearsal phase, uh, and then we continued on the tour. So I did get a chance to to actually fully. Um, integrate and I also uh, um, uh, got uh, um, uh, I did the second keyboard part so I was doing sax tenor and alto some flute and percussion and the the second keyboard bits that, that Gary Brett wasn't covering and uh, mainly string parts and pads and things like that um, but so the, they were getting the money's worth from you yes they were <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's an interesting way to, to to look at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I never thought of it that way, but uh, yes, I was a multi. I was the multi guy on stage. <laughs> if we skip ahead, mm -hmm. I mean, it must have been amazing to go through that. Yes. But you said that '93 things got a little rough. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you got married. You had a kid. Yeah, which was all good. Right. Fantastic. Right. Um, so you now have a challenge, and then in, is it '94, '95 that you decide to pursue? being a paralegal. Right. So as um, well, Paul Sanderson, whose firm it is, I'm an entertainment paralegal with. So I was Paul's uh, yeah, um, first music client in 1983 when he was called to the bar. And um, Paul and I would regularly go out for our, uh, uh, you know, lunches. We would do lunch regularly. Right. Um, and... Um, you know, I would at this time. I, I had uh, uh, I started a, a record label, Hammerhead Records, because through the the mid after Corey Hart's thing. Well, I was already doing a lot of recording because I had a home studio set up. I was doing a lot of recording there, but I, I developed that further after those uh, that uh, experience uh, ran its course, and I was now doing um, you know a lot of um, so-called. Uh, uh, you know the Holiday Inn circuit, if you will. Although it wasn't the Holiday Inn, there were some really nice uh, venues that I, I played, like the, the Sutton Place Hotel. I did a six six month stint there with a really wonderful band, and just a lot of different things like that. But in the daytime, I'd be doing my my studio thing and, and, and working that. And um, so, with the hopes of what? Like what oh, well, developing as a producer, as an engineer. Okay. Yes, which I was doing and, and getting getting jobs, and, and that was good. So you know. You know, money's extra money's because as a musician, as a gigging musician, like you are, well, as, as many creatives, I mean, you are, uh, you have to be multifaceted unless you're just like so incredibly good at the one thing that you do and you can anticipate that you will always be in demand and your royalty flow will and residuals will always be at a, a point that you can uh, <laughs> be happy uh, and uh, enjoy a, a comfortable living. But no, that was not my thing. So I was always in multiple right. areas. And uh, re recording and production was very much a thing. But um, so I, I had a, a label that uh, started a production company, PI Music Productions and Hammerhead Records. Um, and I, I did sign uh, a couple of artists and put them out in the early 90s. Um, 
but all through this, uh, these these phases, um, Paul and I would be meeting, and you know, well, now I had my my name in the various trade um, indexes, PI Music and, and, and Hammerhead Records, and people would be calling me and uh, asking me questions. Well, how do I do this? How do I do that? And um, and that was like often, like every week, there'd be two or three calls. It just out of the people, out of the way. and I would gladly take those calls because I, I just enjoy talking to people. At, um, through that uh, stage, and uh, so I tell Paul this, Paul Sanderson this, and he said, eventually he said, you know what, you should come into the firm, and we'll uh, we'll bill you out as a con- a consultant. And I said, there's no way you would ever find me in a law firm, <laughs> no way, Paul. And he's like, but you've got all this knowledge, this industry knowledge, it would be invaluable, and there's people who will pay for it. I'm, I guarantee you. So. I, I resisted this for years, by the way. It wasn't until 95. That's when I started with Paul, August 95. And uh, so, yes, now we're coming out of that recession. And it's like, yeah, and music had very much dried up. The production had dried up. And, um, you know, it, it was that need, uh, again, the economics, the, the economic dictate. So uh, I said, okay, Paul, uh, I'll try it. And uh, so I called these, there was a few regulars who would be calling me every, you know, so often for input on, you know, their bands or what they're doing. And uh, you know, there's a couple of them that said, uh, I just want you to know that I'm now, um, I got this gig as a consultant with, you know, Paul Sanderson's firm and here's my hourly rate. And um, they were all like, yeah, that's fine. So it was like, wow, instant client base. Why didn't you pay me before? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so can you just define what that role was? What, right, at that right. point, what yeah. was being a paralegal? What, what, yes. Tell it me wasn't, what that was. Well, it wasn't a, a paralegal. So that was maybe a, a little a period of time later. So I'm in there, and I was just doing one or two weeks, days a week. I would come in and meet with various uh, clients. And, uh, yeah. you know, in many, in many ways, just being a, someone to bounce ideas off, being a, a brainstormer, maybe offering suggestions, advice, what have you. Um, so, and this is mainly artists, or this oh, is yeah, musicians, record uh, companies, all all, all, all of the above. Okay. Yeah, just people looking for someone to talk to, you know, to, to further their uh, their endeavors. And um, but as this would as this developed, um, some of these people would be getting deals and uh, other opportunities. So Paul, in his wisdom, would say, "Well, I'll just ghost you on it." So you, you do it. You work through it. Because he knew, Paul knew that I, because I had already done a number of deals, you know, revising and drafting uh, the, my own agreements that Paul would review and say, yeah, you totally got that. And uh, try this, try these. He would, you know. Um, so he knew that I could, um, uh, you know, control and, um, uh, you know, put forward valuable revisions to a document, to an agreement, to in the context of a negotiation. So um, that's where I, I moved from just consulting to actually doing doing legal work. Always, of course, with you know Paul's supervision, um, because that's the context. Uh, even to this day, that you know the paralegal, and so when the paralegal realm came, became uh, formalized with the you know the, the paralegal, this is uh, this is the law society taking control of the paralegal contingent. Um, in effect. And I contacted them and I said, look, this is what I do and how me, how will me, because I, well, you can grandfather with us. And I said, yeah, but how's that going to benefit me? Because 
what you what you're saying I can do. It, it's not in the context of what the paralegals are allowed to do, i.e., contract drafting right. and negotiation. It's it's outside of that. So they said, well, yeah, you you can't. So, but you're still fine under you know the supervision of a lawyer. I said, well, then thank you. <laughs> so it just continued in that in that way that it's I'm what I do is under uh, under the, um, uh, the again the supervision of uh, the, the the supervising lawyer, which is Paul's firm, and and, and that's the. Uh, that's the way it's been for what it's going to be 28 years in August. Wow! So <laughs> I have to ask, and I don't mm-hmm. know if you have the answer to this, but the world and the music industry has changed a great deal since yes, '95. Mm-hmm. And and whether it be Napster, whether it be streaming, <laughs> whether it be <laughs> the pandemic, like everything, yeah. I, and unfortunately, everything seems to have changed things for the worse than. Well, well Napster, I take a deep breath because Napster really was that, uh, that was a, uh, well, maybe not, uh, but it was a key moment. Uh, and, um, I mean, it uh, was it a missed opportunity by the major labels who, uh, you know, m- might have been able to develop uh, similar forms and, and wrestled, it in, <laughs> wrestled it down in a different way? I, I don't know. But, but it was, you know, the, uh, the peer-to-peer capability was... The genie was out of the box. There it is. Mm-hmm. Well, you can do this with, of course, the the advent of the internet. You know, and it's all these things are in um, in, in sync. Uh, and, and, but you'd have to go back to the CD, the, the digitization of recorded music, to really say, oh, that's where it really uh, went off the rails. And how do you, well? How do you control them? I mean, new technologies are you, you can't you can't stand in the way of them. They have to. They have to evolve, and yes, the the laws, the those who will be impacted will be impacted, and uh, hopefully, no one is too hard done by along the way. But um, sorry, Matt, but but I'm it getting, is I'm different. Getting, you know, getting off topic, yeah. yeah. But it is quite different, and the pandemic has yes made things even more different. Um, yeah. I I know that it's not like people can't make money playing music, but I think it's gotten a lot harder. For a lot of people, it well, you know the. So when I was gigging in the seventies, and I mean a lot of musicians of that period and eighties, I mean they they would pay, pay you to play. Right. I mean you would show up, and that was just understood that you're gonna get paid, and you might even get a piece of the bar or whatever the arrangement was. Uh, and um, yes, there are still gigs out there. Like I mean, the whole the wedding gig or the corporate gigs aside, which yes. Lots of good money to be made there, mm-hmm. but for those musicians who are you know, wanting to pursue that uh, that original thing, uh, whether whatever that may be, um, you know, the guarantee, short of where they built a fan base and they can be charging you know reasonable ticket prices, uh, the, you know, the, the the ability to make make a go of it and make even breaking e- breaking even can, can be very much a challenge because many you know many of the venues it's. Uh, you know, pay what you can, or you can keep the door, and we're going to keep the bar. And but you better bring people in who drink. Right. <laughs> no coffee drinkers. <laughs> so knowing this, and because you're right in the middle of this industry, you know you deal with all the people out there, and you know what's going on. And yet, you're still a musician. So, 
over this time period, you've released a number of albums. You've also you continued to write songs. Yes. And I've had a few people that I've talked to who say, well, gee, I don't know, even know what, what to do anymore because I can write a new song, but is it worth putting into a CD? Is it worth going into the studio and recording it? Blah, blah, blah. You continue to write songs and release them. Tell me the thinking behind that. I mean, I guess one at one point before this, you decided that I'm going to be a composer, write songs, and have other people sing them, and then yes. all of a sudden somebody suggested you sing it yourself. Yes. <laughs> so I can imagine that's quite a chance. But you yeah. continue to do so. So tell me about the thinking of that. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's 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 a um, my initial response would be would take me back to uh, a very young person maybe five six seven years old and I fancied myself that one day I would be a famous painter and I would uh, I was just so in love with uh, with fine art um, you know all the greats Rembrandt Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci I mean and I, I had my parents actually got me all all, all the equipment, oil paints, watercolors, pastels, the works. Um, and I would pursue this uh, to a point. So, you know, when that ran its course and, and music now, years later, music takes over and the ability to uh, write, um, uh, write a song uh, and, um, uh, you know, memorialize it in a sound recording or a manuscript, but more importantly, a sound recording these days, mm-hmm. um, was was always there that, uh, you know, okay, I've, I've got this idea. Well, I want to capture it. I want to formalize it and solidify it in some way, shape, or form, albeit in, in an intangible form, a digital file. But still to capture it um, was, uh, was a passion and still is. I mean, it... Uh, I, I, I love the, uh, the, the the chase of trying to get uh, to capture a uh, a performance, a recorded performance. You know, I mean, when you when you watch, for example, the Beatles and they're on take two hundred and forty-five or whatever crazy number, I get it. I know what that's like. Right. You know, yeah. Sometimes you capture it first or second take, amazing, but uh, in in some instances, no, you don't. And you got to keep looking for that, and it goes away, and then it comes back, and then it's almost there. And then it goes away, and 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 it's and you just never know when it when when uh, that recorded performance, assuming that you know the machine is rolling. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you had a song that come to you in 1990, sorry, 1988, that you started working on, and you didn't finish it till like years later. Correct. Yes. So this is like yeah. that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, so, I mean, I mean, the pursuit of writing a song. And it's, I know that people work on it over your time, but I think you worked on it for like 15 years or something? Oh, probably more than that, because it always was... Okay, so the song, uh, I was at um, a, a friend, uh, she and her family had this uh, wonderful uh, uh, cottage in Georgian Bay. And uh, she's like, oh, no, we never go up there, Paul. You should just, here, I'll give you the key. Just go up and, and spend some time there. Because I was saying, yeah, I want to get away and do some writing. So I went up there and uh, came up with this idea. And I was reading about uh, Norval Morisot, the, the painter, the awesome mm-hmm. uh, uh, 
Anishinaabe uh, uh, painter, Ojibwe artist. Um, and uh, so I had this, this chorus idea for the song. And I was up there, I could, you know, for a week. And that's all I could come up with. And I just kept singing it over and over and over and over. And I thought finally, I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. So, so but, but the chorus to the song, which is on the song that I recorded and released uh, a couple of years ago, um, that that remained so that was always there um, but the, the whole verse section t- came out like years and years later where I you know I just I thought okay you know you, you, you hear about like Bob Dylan saying you know, the hardest thing is to finish a song and it's true you, know, you can have a great idea but to actually finish it that's another another you know uh, effort you know, well, or it's, it's- I don't know what it means, but it speaks to who you are that you would go back to the song 15 years later. And well, did it yes. not take like seven years to actually finish it like after that? Yes, it did. That's right. Yes, so I, you're right. Uh, I forgot about that. So I had finished writing it eventually and then um, actually performed it um, in, in 2013. We did a show at the Rivoli. Um, and, uh, um, but, but, and that that was uh, you know it was a, a good performance. It was with a, a full band, four piece horn section, and um, but I always felt yeah that's not the way it should be recorded. Like the recorded version should, should be something more organic sounding, and um, yeah. So it took another seven years to record it. <laughs> but you still do, and I know you're continually working on new songs. Yes, this is something that just comes to you. Like like if a musician says I don't even know what to do with my new music anymore. I don't even have an answer for that, but you do. I mean, you still want to continue recording and you still want to continue putting things out there. I, I will continue to do to, to record and put to music out there uh, until I can't. <laughs> uh, you know, at this at this stage, it um, it it well, it's number one. Um, it's part of what of who I am. I I have to do this. You know, it's this this gift I have so and I know how to do it I've, you know I've trained myself and I've worked with so many great engineers over the years I mean I was always the guy in a session over the engineer's shoulder like how you how did you do that and uh, learned a lot of really good tricks along the way um, to capturing sound and um, I mean that that really is uh, an amazing art um, <clears throat> and in many ways it can only be achieved through experience. I mean, you have to experience what it is to move a microphone that quarter inch to, oh, there it is. <laughs> There's that sweet spot. And it just changes everything. It can change the entire vibe of what you're recording. Because recording an instrument that is being performed live is is one thing. It's another to be recording that instrument that's being performed live for the purposes of that sound recording. Because that song that you might be trying to capture a recorded version of might require uh, that the recorded sound be this or that, right. you know, or you know maybe thinned out in, in some way. So it, it, it's it's a different process. But um, yes, I, I'm, I know I'm getting off topic. But uh, what was the question? But, but I, I wonder. <laughs> so so is, the, is it the idea of capturing and and having a finished product? That's the main goal. Are there right. expectations from that? 
Uh, okay, yes, that's where, where I was going. So the, the expectation, that, and it's rather selfish, is, yeah, it's, is it a legacy play? Yeah, I guess in the long run it is. Because when I look at, for example, my stream count, I mean, it's, yeah, there, there are folks from around the world listening to what I've posted. And, and that's, you know, flattering and all. But it, monetarily, it, um, you know, you can't look at that because it, it's a point zero 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 one. You know, yeah. for for a screen, whatever the number is, depending on the ratio that's being applied at the time, based on the various platforms, la da 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 da. But uh, it it is it is very much for uh, to satisfy um, that need to capture uh, a work of art, and you know whether it's a painting, a photograph, you know, an architectural drawing. I mean, they're all works that need to be set down in my mind. So uh, a song idea, you know, you get the idea, you work it, you work it, you work it. Now, okay, now it's ready to be captured in a recorded form, um, and that's that's the process I go through. And, Excuse me. And now you, in most cases, you would record most of the instruments on your own. I do, and I actually bought a bass. <laughs> so uh, that bass player who you used to hire, he's well, now out of the picture. Okay, yeah, and that that's uh, I, I wish. That weren't the case, but you know, one of the yeah, bass players I, I, I used um, on a number of occasions, he moved to LA, and the other um, is just not always available. So I thought, well, you know what? It's I'm often uh, you know working with them on the part anyway, and you know I I can figure it out. Now that said, they're pretty basic parts. It's not like you know, <laughs> it's not like a, what you would want from a you know, a, a top line, top notch bass player. But that's said, I said that sometimes the songs say, if it really needed that, then yes, I would call someone in who could deliver that. But uh, but these days, the the songs and after I, I'm working on this this one track that should be releasing in the next, uh, I hope the next month. It's called "The Ways of Love," and um, <clears throat> that was written in 2004. <laughs> of course it has. <laughs> But just now getting around to a recorded version of my with me singing okay um but i've i've got a whole other collection of songs that i, I plan to do another full record and release it as a full record because playing uh, all the instruments well i mean pretty much yeah yeah so i do yes i do play all the instruments yeah <laughs> these days okay so my final question because we're gonna wrap this sure. up but mm -hmm. when you play all the instruments as you do and you write the piece of music um how do you look at yourself? Who are you? Like, who, which musician are you? You know, that's a great question, Matthew. You know what I do? I put from various eh, trade magazines or articles pictures of different musicians around the room, and I pretend that I'm in the band with them. So I'll put up, uh, you know, one of my favorite drummers, Levon Helm. Put up a picture of Levon, and I'm grooving along with Levon. Which I did actually in, in real life. I actually did a gig with Leon uh, when I was with Cor uh, not Corey, with uh, Ronnie Hawkins. We did an HBO special, so I got to stand beside Levon, and that was an awesome moment in my <laughs> career. For sure. uh, so yeah, I do that. I visualize and and I represent with uh, you know images to make me feel like because it's just me. It's just you know you're in this thing, and and then when you go to so let's say you now lay down a, a rhythm track, a drum track. And yes, you're generally playing along with a click to at least give you something. Um, so I'll start with a click and then I'll do a rough version of the song, whether guitar, 
and vocal or piano and vocal, something to give me a, a structure. And then I'll revise the arrangement and get that shaped in. And then let's say you're laying down a drum track or a, a rhythm, a percussion instrument, what have you. Yeah, you're looking for that, uh, that, that other thing that you're going to bounce off. And sometimes uh, I, I've used that, well, on many occasions I've used that, 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 having images of other musicians in front of me. That's fascinating. I wonder, though, do you think of yourself a one type of musician more than the other? Or do you think of yourself as a songwriter more than a guitar player, more than a flutist? Well, I'm definitely a guitarist, bass player, none of those, really. I mean, I'm a, I, I can, after, after uh, you know, many attempts, get something that is passable. Uh, uh, but my main instruments are flute and saxophone, for sure, you know. That that's and even vocals. I mean, it, it's it's a, to to find that the the, the the appropriate voice, the character. Uh, yes, it's all coming from me when I sing my songs. But finding that uh, that character um, to use for that song is uh, it's always a challenge. Yeah. yeah. But it's fascinating that you do this. Yes. And the fact that you're playing so many instruments, it's just... Well, it, it's incredibly enjoyable, and uh, it, it, yeah, it, it, until I stop breathing, it's, it's not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Marco.